Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. With everything that's going on with coronavirus right now, I chose a very special message from the Master's Library for this week's podcast. In times of sadness and uncertainty, the thing that brings me the most hope is to get busy and give back. I believe that hope is born from participation and hopeful solutions, and that's why it's so important to me to share this interview with Mike Shalapi, whose inspiring message will surely lift your spirits and shift your focus. At age 14, Mike was a star athlete on his way to a sports career when he was involved in a tragic shooting accident. Doctors said he would never walk again, but that didn't stop Mike from becoming a wheelchair basketball star and Paralympic gold medalist, as well as an author and college graduate with a master's degree. Mike has an amazing attitude and a timely message for all of us. If this message empowers you and gives you hope, please share it with your friends and visit masterspodcastclub.com to sign up for our mailing list. Hi, everybody. This is Wynn Claybaugh. Welcome to this wonderful issue of Masters. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit of this incredible man is, but I really want him to tell his story. And then I'm going to finish sharing with you more about what this incredible man has accomplished. But I'm sitting here right now with Mike Shalapi. So, Mike, welcome to Masters. Thank you, Wynn. It's good to be here. I I also have to say that uh, (laughs) I've done some pretty incredible uh, interviews. I got to interview Larry King in his bedroom and uh, so had some, you know, backstage uh, interviews and hotel room interviews, you know, anywhere I can capture somebody. But this was the unique one today because uh, I came here to Mike's house and he, he fed me and he had a whole entourage of amazing people here. And they had me sit down and play the piano and then they all sang. And so this is a first for me. So, <laughs> And, you know, we're honored to have you here at our home, uh, Wynn. And at this point, we're sitting in the office here, so it's not as exciting as a bathroom. But thank you for doing this. It's a pleasure. Mike is a, a keynote speaker, and he's been inspiring audiences, uh, young and old, all over the place. And I love your message of just because you can't stand up doesn't mean you can't stand out. As president of Mike Shalapi Communications and confined to a wheelchair, he is spreading the word to audiences ranging from students to chief executive officers, from rookies to Olympic champions, and from small gatherings to major conventions. And so uh, I have a whole bunch of other details that I want to share with our audience about what you have accomplished. But before they hear that, I would like for them to hear uh, your story. In particular, obviously, how you ended up in a wheelchair. Yeah. Well, everybody has a story. And, uh, you know, many people's story would break your heart. And my story is just a a simple one, and in my opinion, it started in good old Utah. I was a little star athlete, my dad's prized pupil. He was a basketball coach. I lived my life in a gymnasium as a little boy. And so all my dreams were centered around my legs and athletics. Well, things change, and when my buddy and I were 14 years old, we were on our way to a football practice. Stopped by his house, started messing around in his mom and dad's bedroom. 
he pulled out his dad's off-duty police gun, the typical empty gun story when, you know, hey, Mike, this is my dad's gun. I like to play around with it when, when he's not home, and let me show it to you. Let me show you the bullets. And he thought he took all the bullets out, and I remember watching them plop on the white bedspread right next to me, and it was a quiet Friday afternoon, and he pointed the gun at my chest, thinking it was empty, no bad intentions. It was an accident. And uh, from three feet away, he pointed that 38 caliber pistol right at my chest, pulled that trigger. I remember the sound. I remember the bang. I remember the feel. I remember the smell. The bullet hit my chest, missed my heart, hit my spine, knocked me back onto the white bedspread. Uh, changed my life, paralyzed my legs. I thought I was going to die. I don't know how many details you want right now, but that's what put me in a wheelchair. That's what paralyzed two-thirds of my body. That's what altered the course of my life. Mike is a four-time Paralympic medalist and two-time world champion in wheelchair basketball. The only wheelchair basketball player in the United States to be on four consecutive summer Paralympic teams. Mike was honored by the state of Utah in 2000 as one of the top 50 athletes of the past century. Wow. Jeez. Mike served on the board of trustees that managed the 2002 Winter Olympic Games, which were held here in Salt Lake City, Utah. He is the founder and director of the Wheelchair Sports Foundation, a nonprofit organization that serves disabled athletes. Mike has recently been inducted into the Wheelchair Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, your engaging presentations have entertained and inspired thousands of audiences worldwide. Mike received his certified speaking professional from the National Speakers Association in 2003. Off the basketball court, Mike has graduated with a master's degree in business administration and healthcare from Arizona State University and on a leadership scholarship earned an undergraduate degree in finance from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Mike is also a writer an author of three popular inspirational books which draw heavily on his own experiences and the challenges he's overcome. Uh, your book, Shot Happens, is one of the bulletproof principles for personal success, and your third book, uh, Motivational Leaders. Mike has won numerous honors, including the American Medical Association's Special People Award, the Sporting Goods Manufacturer of America's Heroes Award, and the Golden Key Athlete of the Year Award. So, uh, that's quite a list. How does that make you feel listening to, well, to all of that? I, You know, if you had asked my mom, she'd probably even tell you more. But the reality is, <laughs> uh, when I'm a normal guy with lots of problems and challenges, but I've been very fortunate to survive my accident and to let it springboard me into some opportunities that never would have existed had I not spent life in a wheelchair. There's a subtitle for your book, Shot Happens, which is what? I got shot. What's your problem? (laughs) (laughs) It's not meant to really be in your face, but it is a little bit of a, hey, uh, we all have things. I got shot, and what's your thing? What's your problem? Right. So give us more of the story, because uh, I was honored to have Mike in front of leaders from my organization, and you just absolutely had such a profound impact on them, <laughs> including family. My mom was there. My dad was there. You know, I always like to share the best of the best with uh, mom and dad, too. Yeah. And uh, your, your story is a powerful one. And we want to hear every part of the story that you can share with us because it's powerful. Well, 
thank you, Wynn, and you have an amazing organization that's blessed millions of people. Um, and it was my honor to share my story. You know, we talked a little bit about the sports part, and I lost my legs, and I was an athlete. That was my identity, and I went through rehab, and I laid there in pain, and my girlfriend dumped me, and didn't know if I wanted to live, and all these things are going on in your mind. Is, is you know, that happens when people struggle in life for a variety of reasons, and I just, something inside of me happened where I realized that's going to be okay. I knew I had family around me. I knew I had friends. I believed in God. I just, I believed in myself. And I somehow realized I could take this thing and figure out a way to let it work for me. You were 14 when you got shot? I was almost 15 years old. I got a wheelchair for my 15th birthday. Okay. And at what point did, you said something clicked or something happened where you had that comfort or that feeling that everything was going to be okay. How long after you had been shot did that feeling come? You know, I, I don't remember one specific moment, but I spent a few months in rehab. I spent eight days in intensive care. People would visit me. I had a lot of time alone to think, and I'd write poetry. I think it was a gradual process over, over a two- or three-week period. I had a gentleman visit me, missing his fingers, missing his legs, invited me out to play wheelchair basketball. I realized, hey, I can still do everything I used to do. I'm just going to have to do it a little different. How does a 15-year-old not become angry and stay angry for years and years? Because that also meant that you either missed out or fell behind what the rest of your friends and classmates were doing from, I don't know, about driving or dating or other sports activities or backpacking through Europe or I don't, I don't know what else you missed out on. How did you not become angry at that stage? Well, I probably went through the steps. I probably did become a little bit angry, but I never got bitter. I never went in a hole for weeks and months. And I would never tell anybody that's listening to this, don't have a bad day. Because it's okay to have a bad day. Don't deny yourself of your feelings, but don't get mired in those mocks of depression where everything is so bad. Because I realized I could still drive. I just have to do with hand controls. I could still play basketball in a wheelchair. I quickly realized that, hey, even some of my friends, these females... These girls, they were still okay with me, even though my legs were skinnier. And so it was just a process of me believing in myself and knowing that if I believed in myself, somehow others around me would believe in me and together as a team, we could reach our dreams. Tell us more about the part of the story about your friend who shot you, just how that all unfolded as well. Yeah, we were friends. We were neighbors. Uh, this was difficult. I, I remember laying in the hospital. He came to visit me. And he handed me a book. And we're both crying. And I realized this didn't just happen to me. This happened to my family, my friends, my neighbors. And this friend in particular, we hung out. We'd go to the mall. It was awkward. People would come up and say, Mike, why are you in a wheelchair? Uh, I'd point at him and say, uh, he shot me. <laughs> and it was awkward. But it's something we had to go through. And let me just tell you a little bit about my friend. He ended up uh, not really forgiving himself, moving away, getting involved in drugs, trying to rob some banks, went to federal prison for over 20 years. Wow. And my friend and I have reconnected in the last five years. And I still have the bullet that spent two years in my back. And I think of him every time I see that bullet. I think of what we went through. And, and so I realize in all these situations, even though people see my wheelchair... There's my friend, if you look at him, perfectly good-looking guy. 
And yet he has his challenge, his disability, his obstacle that's every bit as real to him as my wheelchair. And he has his bad days, but I'm proud of him. He's got his life positioned properly, and he doesn't use this as an excuse for failure. Hmm. You said that it didn't just happen to you, it happened to him and other family members as well. Can you kind of expand more on that? Because sometimes when we're in our own little pity parties... You know, it's all about me. I'm the one that's the victim here. I'm the one who's suffering here. I'm the one in pain here. And we sometimes fail to realize that it is affecting other people. Oh, absolutely. Very often do, very seldom do you go through something that someone else hasn't been through or someone else can't feel a piece of your pain. I'd talk to my mom in the mornings after I went home and we'd talk and she'd cry and we'd talk and she'd cry. And I could see she was struggling with this as much as I was. My dad, he didn't cry. But he was in pain. He'd spent thousands of hours with me as his son in the gymnasium, just getting into high school, wanted to be this star athlete. Now I'm sitting in a wheelchair in the wheelchair section during these games. And so we're all affected a little bit different. My brothers and sisters were always there for me. We wouldn't not go to Lake Powell. We'd just go to Lake Powell and take me with the family. And we we had to do it a little bit different. But I, I just learned that we were a team. And when I needed to be lifted to somewhere, they'd lift me. Mm-hmm. And if I allowed them to help me, it helped all of us. And my mom, she would be crying. And one time, she gave me my life motto. Mike, just because you can't stand up doesn't mean you can't stand out. Made sense to me. I was brand new in a wheelchair. I didn't know any better. And it launched me off into a, a hopefully a successful career. How old were you when your mom said that to you? I would have been 15 and a half years old. Just because you can't stand up doesn't mean you can't stand out. Yeah. Wow. That's become like a a motto and a theme that you share a lot with your audiences now. Yeah, it's kind of my little tagline. You know, I hope everybody has their own little mission statement, whether it's their personal life or their company. But mine is if you can't stand up, stand out. And uh, it just has a personal meaning to me. One of the things I do when, when I talk to people or I meet people on a personal level and I know they're struggling or they've got pain, I challenge everybody to find their bullet. You know, I had a bullet spent two years in me, and my bullet took a lot from me. But I challenge people to find your bullet. Get inside your head, get inside your heart, get real, and try to, you know, just try to be honest with yourself and just try to identify what's your bullet that's paralyzing you in some way or another. So when you give that challenge out to people, what comes up for people? What do people identify as their bullets? You know, most of the time I used to think of it as wheelchairs or hearing aids or being blind. But over the years, I've, I've talked to people that are struggling in their relationships, people that are struggling with depression, people that are struggling with confidence. So it's oftentimes things you can't see. You know, I'm in a wheelchair. People can build a ramp or open the door for me or, or build a handicapped parking stall. But I know, I mean, you and I just spent an hour with 10 wonderful people in my home. Right. And they're smiling and they're happy and they're bouncing around. They're in pictures with us. I promise you, as they drive home in their cars, they've got fears. And they've got things they wonder about. And, and it, it, a lot of times they're just more internal things. And I think a lot of times we just stuff them away and pretend they're not there. It doesn't mean you're weak if you have a wheelchair. It doesn't mean you're a loser if you've got a problem. You're better off facing it and, you know, using that obstacle to kind of give you that daily motivation that you can overcome. Yeah, I think you have a message for, for both sides. You have the, the message for the person who is struggling with whatever their bullet is. But there's also the message on the other side for people who 
maybe they don't always identify that people are struggling. You know, people can look at you and say, oh, well, yeah, he's struggling, or they assume you're struggling. He's in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So they can automatically have, you know, sensitivity with your situation. Yeah. But there's able-bodied people who can mask it and cover it up, and you never know about it. Absolutely. The majority of the world out there doesn't live life in wheelchairs, but the majority of the world has pain. I call them ABs, able bodies. And you know what? If someone wants to look at me and if if they want to have compassion for me or if I can be an inspiration for them when, I'm happy. If I can make someone's day better, great. I'm happy. But a lot of times we have to find that motivation inside ourselves every day. You know, love and fear and pain can motivate us. But most motivation eventually is self-motivation. You've got to get up and figure out a way on your own to have a goal or to get through your bad day or to... And, you know, if you see somebody in a wheelchair like me and it inspires you or helps you, awesome. But we got to figure out a way to get it done. Can you take some time to uh, educate our, our listeners? Because I'm sure, again, people, not that they mistreat you, but they, they don't know how to treat you. They don't know how to, to talk to somebody or to... Uh, interact with somebody who's in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of educate our listeners more about that? Yeah. Because again, the whole purpose of this is is awareness. You know, what does Oprah always say? If you, when you know better, you do better. The more knowledge that we have, the more awareness that we have. Well, then I can I can be more sensitive, or I can be less sensitive because it's not as big of an issue as I'm making it for that person. So yeah. yeah. No, I mean you make a great point. Maybe it isn't be more sensitive. Maybe it is. That's wonderful. Maybe it's be less sensitive. I've never thought of it that way, but I, you know, I just tell people, if you, if you don't like somebody, get to know them until you do. A lot of times people are afraid of my chair or my skinny legs, or maybe they're not afraid. I don't know what their background is. I, I don't know what they're going through, but I, I just don't want, if, if you're curious or you're wondering, walk right up to me and look me in the eyes and say, hey, Mike, why are you in a wheelchair? And I'll say, hey, when? I got shot when I was a kid. And I'm used to it. I've been living with this for 35 years. It's, right. I've met almost every situation I can face. And, you know, I think a lot of it's just breaking down barriers. It's breaking down the barrier. That's why when I give my keynotes, almost the very first thing I tell an audience is why I'm in a wheelchair. Because I don't want you sitting there for 30 minutes, your mind wandering. Why is this guy in a wheelchair? I wonder if he tried to commit suicide. Was he drinking and driving? No. I was on my way to a football practice. My friend shot me. I got shot. What's your problem? I mean, right. so anyhow, I think just ask questions. And guess what? If I'm bitter, if I have a problem, if I have an attitude towards you, you come up in the store and you're trying to help me at the door, the problem doesn't lie with you. Right. The problem lies with me. Right. So just ask. So do you find that in your community, because uh, you obviously have a lot of friends who are also in wheelchairs, mm-hmm. are, are they pretty much the same attitude? They just want, you know, just ask me, just tell me, or, or just ask me and I'll tell you exactly why I'm in this wheelchair. Is it, is it, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking that maybe it's the same for most people, you know, just you know, ask me why I have this whatever is yeah. different from other people. Yeah, that's what it is. It's just different. It's not bad. It's just different. And. And that's really what it is, is don't be afraid. Ask. If you're wondering whether or not to open a door for a person in a wheelchair, gosh darn it, open that door. Right. Courtesy is always in fashion. It's better to help people out than run and hide. Right. When in doubt, help people out. I have lots of friends. I don't want to pretend we're all the same. Right. I don't recommend you see somebody that's in a wheelchair and you run 200 yards away and say, hey, why are you in a wheelchair? But if you have a conversation or you're in a situation where you're uncomfortable or you're curious, Never be afraid to ask because when you break down the barrier, the whole foundation of the relationship can blossom. 
mm-hmm. when you break down the barrier? I've always been drawn to <laughs> motivational speakers who have had to overcome something physical. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I would do with that. I don't know how, if, if I ended up in a wheelchair, you know, like I've, I, again, I hired you to come and speak, but you're not the first person in a wheelchair. You're probably the third or fourth okay. that I've hired to come and speak to my group. I'm, I mean, I followed these people on, you know, Google or YouTube or I'm people that overcome something physical. I'm just so hmm. intrigued by that. Hmm. It's like, it, maybe it just puts things like immediately into perspective for me. And maybe that's what it does. You know, I, and again, I don't know what I do to other people. I know this. The physical part of me being in a wheelchair is I don't have to tell you my life's tough. Tough, you can see it. Got it. I don't have to get up on a stage and spend 20 minutes saying, I was a poor kid and I was born this way and I had a tough life and my parents beat me. You can see it. It's like I have instant credibility with you. Got it. And I'm kind of that way too. I was the same way. And yet I've really come to be more compassionate towards all human beings that have different challenges. You know, and so I... I'm not sure. Maybe the physical thing is just, like I say, very much more apparent. What, what do people say to you that, that you do for them? So you have an audience, and I also saw that you're very intimate with your audience, too. So it's not like it's a presentation. You're off the stage and jumping on a plane. You're very intimate with your audience, mm-hmm. and so they're talking to you. And because you said some things, even though they just met you two hours ago, they feel like they have permission to share very intimate details and stories about their lives. What do people tell you that you do for them? Um... They were thinking of leaving their husband. They decided to stay. They were thinking of uh, taking drugs and ending their life, and they decided not to. They were thinking that uh, you know they just didn't have the energy or money to finish school, and I inspired them. I inspired them. And you know what? That's fine. I, I take it as a compliment if I can inspire somebody. One of my whole... I, I'm really win. I'm not a motivational speaker. I mean, I am, but if uh, you could talk about subjects much more passionately and you know, better than I could. But I have one story to tell. It's my story. I've learned that it helps people. One of my biggest obstacles before I go on stage, I go find a bathroom stall somewhere and I try to get real. And I try to remember this really happened to me and how did I feel that day I got shot. And and this isn't about me. I get on that stage. I want to, I really have a desire to look into that audience and help those people. And maybe they feel that. Maybe that's why they're willing to come up after and pull me aside after I've signed a few books and say, Mike, what should I do about my son that we just haven't spoken for 10 years? So mm-hmm. it's, it's where I, I just find enjoyment in helping people, which, you know, to me, I know I've come full circle in my situation when I know it's no longer just about me. I mean, yes, it's my living and I get on planes and, you know, you do this too. But it's, you really aren't worried about drawing more cameras to yourself. You just really want to help people. Right. I try to, because uh, I have a team of educators, and, and part of the training that we do for them is is not so much your performance on stage, because on stage you can learn to use the right voice tonations and rework the sentence so it comes off funnier or more emotional or get the reaction that you want. But it's really your performance off stage, and what I'm always trying to tell them is, you know, you got to be real up there. Like what you were talking about, you go to the bathroom stall to just try to get connected with your story and with the message, and you're mm-hmm. you're trying to get connected to the audience. Like, what do they really need? It's not yeah. so much about you. Yeah, you're there to get paid and tell your story, but it's what do they really need? Yep. You're good too, by the way. It was phenomenal. Oh, thank you. I 
I, you know, you just described it. I've tried to perfect my trade and find in each story the laughter or the message. But I've learned a long time ago, people remember what they feel. People remember what they feel. And if, if you can be real with people and break... Mm-hmm. See, I just I almost make fun of myself sometimes. My legs or I had to learn to you know, do things different. I mean, very personal things, catheterizing yourself or maybe even your sexual life or whatever. And I don't want to get too graphic here, but I think people have learned if I can get real with myself and I can laugh about myself and I can almost make fun of myself, then I think it helps you connect with the audience. And then they start to take your message and attach it to their life. And that's, you know, I I hope whoever listens to this I don't care if they know I went to the Olympics or wrote a book or got shot. Mm-hmm. I hope that they're listening to me and their minds thinking, what can I do better? What can I do different? If he can do it, I hope I can do it mm-hmm. too. What can I change in my life? Where's my bullet? I hope your mind is wandering right now. And I hope I, hope I get an email from you saying, Mike, that master CD helped me do this a little bit different. Be great. By the way, just where is that bullet right now? That bullet is right around the corner with my Olympic medals wow. in a backpack, waiting to get on an airplane to give a speech. Wow. So you carry it with you. I do. Was that... So it, it was in your body for... They removed it two years later when you were 16, 17 is when they removed it. Yep. I went back to the hospital with a broken arm from an arm wrestling. I broke my arm arm wrestling. <laughs> went back to the hospital... Same doctors and nurses, more surgery. You know, I like to joke and say I had four limbs and now only one of them worked. Right. But when they did my arm surgery, they flipped me over, took the bullet out of my spine, and I just use it with me now as part of my presentations. What, what was that like? You wake up out of surgery and they hand you the bullet. What did that feel like? What was the emotion or the thoughts surrounding that bullet being in your hand, knowing what that bullet had done to change your life? You just hit my thoughts. I just started shaking. I'd never seen this bullet before. Right. I didn't know if it was going to be smashed or big or little. I didn't know exactly what. But I held it in my hand and I started shaking. And I just had a lot of the same thoughts. You just said, I thought, this little thing did all this to me. This, this thing changed my life. And it was a little bit more of a negative thing. Like, yeah. you hurt me. You did this to me. Right. And now I embrace it. I put it around my neck with my medals. I carry it with me. I challenge people. Not in a weird, morbid way, but it's just my bullet. Right. Take us back as you're, so you're 14, 15 years old. Um, just kind of give us a, a little journal here. What was difficult? What did you have to struggle with? Was it, was it dating? Was it learning how to drive? Was it your attitude? Was it your, did your grades then suffer? What was it? All of the above? It, it was a little bit of everything. I never was a whiner. I always took things as a challenge. If I saw a curb, I was going to figure out how to jump it. I'd figure out how to pop a wheelie and go downstairs. And I'm, don't get me wrong. I had a little bit of something inside of me that would say, don't go to the dance. You're different. Girls don't want to dance with you. Sit on your lap. But I usually would just tough my way through it. And I'd figure it out and I'd go to the dance. And my friends were there. And, my, and I'd realize that, you know, it, it's okay. People were rallying around the fact that I didn't run and hide. But my grades never suffered. I didn't ever freak out. And I'm going to assume maybe I was a little bit unique because the therapist at the hospital warned my parents that I probably would go through some pretty weird, down, freak out kind of moments. I never really did. I think the part for me that might have been the most difficult, if I could just put a finger on it, was probably just that I knew I was different and I knew it had an effect on some people around me 
and I didn't want myself to make other people feel awkward. And so it was just, it wasn't that people stared at me, it's just I just knew that I was different and that that caused people around me to sometimes feel bad, and I, I didn't want that. So what was your tricks or your ammo to help people not feel uncomfortable um, was it was it humor was it to tell your story was it to be the what was it it was humor a lot a lot of laughter a lot of smiles a lot of showing up and doing crazy things and realizing that other people embraced that right. they didn't look at me dancing with a girl on my lap and thinking he's a freak they were probably jealous they were like <laughs> jealous they wanted to bring my extra wheelchair to the next school day so that they could have so a girl sit, have on their lap. sit on their lap absolutely <laughs> yeah but I, I just think it was just a matter of me being comfortable with myself. What, what are some of the other challenges that you had to go through? Uh, you have the physical challenges, of course. Again, people think you're in a wheelchair. It's just pushing a wheelchair, you know, up a ramp or through the snow. No. There's so many things that come with a disability. With having two-thirds of your spinal, you know, your body is just a big electrical thing. And I've got shooting pains. I have phantom pains. I have issues with bowel and bladder and sexuality. You have issues with people, with society, with jobs, with, with health. So again, I could sit here and complain or whine or we could paint a bad picture, but that's real. But I think those are the things that I had to deal with that I almost felt like nobody understands. Hmm. Even my parents, even my family, even my spouse. They don't totally understand, but then you know what, when Who does? Right. I don't even understand what my kids are going through all the time. Right. I don't understand everything you deal with in life. We don't understand what your professionals deal with, your schools. Everyone's got their thing. And right. I just I just dealt with it and accepted it. Well, I, even in a small way, I saw you do it today. You were like the ringleader today in making sure that everybody felt comfortable, that everybody felt included, everybody felt safe, everybody felt involved. And I mean, I have a feeling that that's what you've done in your life. And, and that's what successful leaders do is you may not know the story and everybody has a story. You may never even hear the story, but that doesn't mean that somebody isn't struggling and that you don't have the responsibility to create that safe, loving environment. So even if you never hear why they're struggling, at least for some reason when they're in your presence or they work in your organization or they belong to your family or they're part of your circle of friends, they feel safe and loved. Yeah, I don't ever tell anybody what I'm struggling with, but when I'm with them, I feel like I'm okay. Yeah, I'm I'm loved. And and you know, it's not that you're faking it, but if you are a a school owner, or if you're a business person, or if you're a family, whatever, when you have people in your presence and it's your gig or your party, you almost have to set your woes aside. You know, in life, you could spend your whole life complaining, but I'm not sure it does that much good. I think, you know, like today, we just were having a good time, and we were honored to have you here, and these people wanted to meet you, but, but they all had their thing, and I just, like you said, I just felt like I was just doing my best to make everybody comfortable, and I wasn't even really thinking about my wheelchair necessarily, it was just, we're happy to have you here in our home, we hope you're feeling good, but so often in life, when you're really down, if you can just somehow get out of your own world, Try to make someone around you a little happier, smile, and who cares about your problems? Just get into their world. It's amazing what you can do for people. I used to play this little game in my mind. It was called Pass or Fail. 
so that every person I came into contact with, strangers, whatever, it was either pass or fail. So in my mind, did I just pass? And a pass would be, I smiled at you. Right. You know, on the elevator, I turned and said, hey, have a good day. Uh, a fail is I just stood there with a blank stare and watched the numbers go up and never said a word to you. Yeah. Or worse, you had a worse day because of your experience with me. Yeah. And I, and I think about that a lot because I don't think that I could have 50 failures in a day with 50 total strangers and then go home and expect that I'm going to have a, a successful marriage with my spouse. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, I'd say this. You've obviously had a lot of passes. These uh, future professionals here today said you were in their school less than a month or two ago. And they said what they remembered is you would so willingly hug strangers. And they remember that and it had a positive impact on them. Huh. So thank you. To me, that's the, that's the easiest thing. Sometimes the, the hard part is trying to give advice because the things that they can throw at you, you know. I mean, I'm amazed that you know, they're 20 years old and they've already dealt with eating disorders, drug abuse, abuse, all kinds of things. Yeah. Homelessness, you know, at 20 years old. And so sometimes that's the hard part is to hear their story and try to muster some type of words of advice to help them get through that. The easy thing for me is I'm just going to hug everybody. <laughs> yeah. That's easy. But that's, that's real. Mm -hmm. And that's what they need. And they'll feel that love. And, you know, the fact that you can look at these future professionals or whoever, your employees, and see that positive in them. Mm -hmm. See the fact that you're proud of them. Mm -hmm. They went through all this, and yet they want to do this positive thing in their life. It would be so easy with your spouse, your children, or your friends to always see the negative. Mm -hmm. But when we see the positive, it's just such a better way to live, the, live life. I know a business owner that it's, it's either he, himself, his wife, or one of their uh, managers, key managers. They all take turns, and every single day there's hundreds of people that show up to work. And one of them is assigned to stand by the front door every single morning and hug everybody. I love it. That's how they start the work day. Every single day, somebody is there to hug them as they walk in. Yeah. Creates this family feel and helps people. That's neat. Talk to us about meeting your wife and dating and marriage. And you have <laughs> what you told me. You, you correct me. You are the stressed parents of five kids. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that well, was funny. Yeah. Blessed or stressed. You know, I've been married to Tammy for 10 years, and everybody has, again, their story. She lost her husband mm -hmm. to brain cancer. Mm -hmm. So I had three children from a previous marriage. Mm -hmm. So we have the five kids all the way college, you know, high school, junior high, each different, each wonderful. And, you know, I'm not sure that I'm the perfect person to talk about, you know, relationships or what it's like to live with a guy in a wheelchair, but I know it's unique. I know for my wife, it brings some different challenges. I, I'm not as apt to run out and move the trampoline or mow the lawn, but I try to be capable. I'm right. not very good at climbing trees when. Right. I didn't put the Christmas lights up. I'll admit it. I don't want to be in two wheelchairs. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've just been blessed. I, each person in my life brings a unique something to me, and uh, they each, I hope, gain something from me. And I just feel like I've lived a normal life. I've been to school. I have a master's degree. I've had jobs. I drive cars. I play sports. I have good days. I have bad days. I have a bad back. I mean, I'm just blessed to have five kids and a great wife. Wow. Wow. Okay, talk to us about your career being an Olympian here. How did that all come about? And I mean, did it ever occur to you? Well, I guess I think you said you did. 
it did occur to you at a very early stage right of this that just playing basketball, but to compete. And then there's also yeah. a story that I want you to tell about winning a medal and then losing it. I wrote that down and I've repeated that story over and over and over again because it talks, it's a message of accountability that when you're on a team, you know, you're not only responsible for your own performance, but you know, your performance has accountability for everybody else too. So anyway, talk to us about your, yeah, uh, no, Olympic, I, your Olympic career. Yeah, absolutely. I, I laid in the hospital wondering if I would ever play basketball again. That's where I got a lot of my self-esteem. Thought I'd just have to sit in the wheelchair section the whole game. But I started playing wheelchair basketball. And it was a little different, but it was very much the same. The basket was 10 feet, referees, the sound of the whistle and the sound of the floor and the smell of the gym and, and three-pointers and jump balls. And I loved it. I got hooked. Started playing with the rim riders and then the wheel and jazz. And I realized they had wheelchair basketball in the Olympic Games. Hmm. And if you know anything about me back then, I'm like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and I set a goal, and I started working towards it. And I'd been in a wheelchair 10 years. I was 25 years old. I was a student at Arizona State University. I got my chance to try out for the Olympic team. I tried out against 100 of the best wheelchair basketball players in the United States, and I heard my name. Oh my One God. of those 12. And I was the youngest on the team. I was so darn excited. And I don't want to bore you with all the details, but I go to the Olympics, and you know, there's packed stadiums, and we're playing. we got the USA on, and cameras are there. And I was just used to playing wheelchair basketball where nobody would show up, and we just played because we loved the game. And all of a sudden, I was representing my country. And then all of a sudden, we win a gold medal, and the national anthem, and the flags, and the flags. And my family had come from all over the country to support. I just, it was like a dream come what true. What year was this, and where? This was in 88 in Seoul, South Korea. Wow. And then I competed again in 92 in Barcelona in the summer games. Oh, my gosh. And so we won two gold medals. But the story you had alluded to happened in the second games in Barcelona. Won a gold medal, a national anthem, life's good, you know, just the pinnacle. And then they drug test you. And one of my teammates had taken an illegal drug. And we had to give our gold medals so back. So 12 people on the team. 12 people. Had to give back a gold medal. All that time. The whole country, and you want to be angry, and this is one of my best friends. And you go through all the emotions, and you give it back because you can't ever play basketball again if you don't, and all, whatever. But the bottom line is, it's accountability, it's responsibility, it's recognizing that everything you do affects everybody else on your team. Mm-hmm. And so basketball has come full circle to me. It now is back to one of the things that I find full enjoyment. I, I love, it keeps me in shape a little bit. I'm on a team, we're going to Vegas tomorrow, I play for the Wheel and Jazz, we're ranked number five in the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. I'm too old to be on an Olympic team, I'm pushing 50 years old, but for 20 years I competed on four Olympic teams, wow. and it was a big part of my life, and I was very focused and dedicated, and I loved it. Wow. What other amazing moments have you had because of your Olympic career? What other amazing moments have you had representing your country or being part of uh, other Olympics since then? Yeah, I've competed all over the world, you know, different continents and different situations and different teams and coaches. And each game, each Olympic, each medal has a different meaning and a different feel to you. Probably the overall thing that just comes to my mind is just watching these people with disabilities do amazing things blind athletes, 
uh, double amputees, guys missing their arms and legs, uh, just blind skiers, blind runners, blind swimmers, uh, deaf people, dwarfs lifting weights, you know, bench pressing 400 pounds, and just watching people, watching what the power of the human spirit mm. can do. It can usually trump the physical body. Maybe that's what kind of turns me on and yeah. inspires me, you know? Yeah. Because it's so easy for me, you know, wake up with a belly ache and I'm going to throw a pity party. Yeah. You know, but then I think of my friends. Yeah. You know? Huh. Yeah, it's, it's probably, and maybe that's what that whole thing did for me, is even though I was disabled, I'd be around 1,500 people in the lunchroom in the Olympic Village. Every person at every table was like me. Right. And yet such a different story and such a different disability and sometimes they were born that way and sometimes they were in a car wreck and sometimes they were shot and sometimes they fell off a cliff and sometimes they stepped on a landmine and some, all these things I just was kind of curious like whoa that guy's eating with his feet I mean that's an extreme but right. weird things that, and so I, I kind of allowed other people to do to me what I think I must do to other people when they see me kind of inspire you huh Okay, now talk to us about this uh, speaking career, because you weren't always a motivational speaker. I mean, you worked in corporate America, you, you know, did all of that. How did this come about? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, don't get me wrong, I wasn't afraid to tell a story or, you know, be a salesperson or whatever. I worked in healthcare, that's what my master's degree was in. And, but I, after my accident, people would say, Mike, could you come share your story with my scout troop? So uh, what, at... Oh, 16, what, almost 16. immediately. Are you serious? Yeah, I mean, not as a big event. Right. But just, Mike, will you come talk to my kids in my elementary school? Sure. And I didn't know what to do, and I was scared, and I didn't, and I'm sure I was terrible. But I know this, it helped people. Right. It helped me. It helped me realize I could share my story. Hmm. And when you share your story, you gradually realize you're okay, because you're willing to share. Right. But I just, it evolved, and... Oh, maybe seven, eight, nine years later, I'd get the guts up to ask a high school for $300. And, and then um, somebody would call me. And I remember one guy, I said, well, I'll, I'll charge you $600. And he kind of laughed and he said, no, we budgeted three times that to bring a guy like you in. I said, okay, <laughs> wow. okay. And then he said, do you have any books? And I thought, no, but I'll get one. Right. <laughs> and so I started writing a book. And, you know, I just, I eventually just became my career. I just, three, four, five times a month, I'll go somewhere. Sometimes it's huge. Sometimes it's small. Uh, sometimes it's in New York. Sometimes it's in London. Other times it's in Moab, Utah, or down the road. I don't care. But if I have a free day and I can help people. Uh, but that's what I do now as a living. And I, I like I said, I, if you had to tell me to talk about, you know, bottled water, I would be the worst speaker in the world, Win Right. But I can share my experiences and I can help people. And it, it's just evolved to that's what I do full time now. I don't know how long it'll last. It's been 10 years. Right. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it. So how much are you on the road? And for what kind uh, of audiences? Yeah, not as much as you. I would say three or four times a month I'm on an airplane. That's a lot. Yeah, I guess it is. And I'll fly somewhere, maybe to a hotel. I get there the night before and get up and share my story, open a convention or close an event and sell a few books. And I'm back out of there before they figure me out. That's usually, <laughs> so it's usually one night. Right. But I would say on average it's four, five, six nights a month. I'm on the road. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
your books. Tell us about the books and how, how did those come about? My first book uh, was Bulletproof Principles. Okay. But it's kind of evolved. Even my most recent book, which is Shot Happens, is just kind of my story. It's kind of my first book, and then I've added to it and added some pictures. My first book, Bulletproof Principles, was just more, it's my story, but it's just more my story. Whereas Shot Happens is more of a self-help book. Okay. The way we react, the way we respond, the way we position ourselves, taking responsibility, what's your problem. You just So it's, it's almost a self-help book with my story laced all the way through it. Uh, but it's been out about a year, and it's kind of that attitude is not a mood. Attitude is not a mood. People think, oh, just change your attitude, change your mood. No, you can be in a crappy mood. I was in a crappy mood after I got shot, but my attitude was great. What's attitude win? It's position. Now, let me repeat that. I was in a crappy mood after I got shot. Don't get me wrong. But I got myself positioned properly. So we have good days, we have bad days. We have good moods, bad moods. But I had myself positioned. I had my attitude proper faced in the right direction, that I am going to be successful. I am going to go to school. I am going to whoop this. I am going to lick this. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to forgive my friend. I'm going to get through this. And so that's a magical concept to me because people think that you can't have bad days or just snap out of it. No, you've got to have good days and bad days. You have a right to your feelings, but always have yourself positioned to a bright future. If you look up the word attitude in the, in the dictionary, it talks about a position. Like in the scriptures, it talks about a position of kneeling. It's an attitude. If you talk to a pilot, you ask him his most important instrument, he'll tell you attitude indicator. When he first told me that, the pilot, I thought, you mean altitude? You mean how high you are? He said, no, not altitude. Attitude. He says, it tells me the position of my airplane. Anyway, in a nutshell, that's what this book about is about, is how attitude is position. Attitude is a position, not a mood. See, I, I love That's this kind of because... Deep. sorry. No, no. I remember, because I kind of lived a life being depressed most of my childhood, and then all of a sudden found some things that kind of pulled me out of that, and I literally thought that I could read enough motivational books that I would get to the point where I would never be depressed again. I yeah. really thought, and literally for like a, a year, I never had those feelings, those, those feelings of depression. I thought, I've licked this thing. I will never be depressed again. And then I remember all of a sudden one day I was depressed. And I got depressed because I got depressed. Yep. And what you're saying is I, okay. still, I still had the right attitude. Absolutely. I was still on the right path. Yes, you were. I still had my, my priorities. I still had my goals. I was positioned correctly for a life of success. I just had a bad day. And don't let that bad day turn into a bad week just because you had a bad day. See, you're a great audience member because you already understand what I'm trying to tell you. You haven't even read my book. You caught on to what I said. I thought I was confusing the heck out of you there. But you caught on to what I was saying. I'm telling people, get positioned, headed in the right direction in school, whatever you want to do, get headed there and allow yourself good moments and bad moments. Don't beat yourself up, but just don't allow that bad day to turn into a bad month. That's when you do have an issue. You got to keep, but keep moving forward. Keep reaching your goals, getting up, going to school, going to work, but have good days and bad days, but stay positioned towards a bright future. This is great because it's what I believe. A lot of people will, they'll sabotage. Yeah. Like, well, I blew it because I have a, I've had a bad day. So everything else is just down the toilet too. Mm-hmm. I, I might yeah. as, I might as well. Start, I might as well quit. I might as well quit. Yeah. I might as well start drinking yeah. or using yeah. again. It does because it, yeah. it's all for nothing. Yeah. I need an excuse to fail. Right. I need an excuse to quit. No. 
Just keep moving forward. Things will open up. Things will change. Your career isn't exactly where you thought it would be that first minute you started doing what you're doing. I didn't know I was going to be a speaker when I was getting a master's degree in healthcare administration. But if you keep moving forward and blessing people like you're saying and stay positive, things will work out. Wow. Things will work out. So that's primarily the, the, the focus in this book, a Shot Happens. Shot happens. Mm-hmm. How, how do people get in touch with your books and you and... You have, you have a website. Oh, yeah. My, I'm, I'm not done with stories. No, by, no, no. No, it's easy to find me. It's MikeShalapi.com. Shalapi is S-C-H-L-A-P-P-I. Yes, MikeShalapi.com. My nickname as a kid, if it helps you remember, was Happy Shalapi. Happy Shalapi. My okay. wife, if it helps you remember, it's Crappy Shalapi. <laughs> I mean, she calls me that. Not her, yeah. But So, anyway, MikeShalapi.com. I'm happy to sign them and send them out to people. If you know people are having a bad day or been in an accident or whatever. I'm happy, happy to send it. What actually is was going to be my next uh, line of questioning because um, uh, this beautiful couple who worked for me, their grandson shot himself. He was trying to commit suicide. He was drunk or whatever. Anyway, he survived. Mm-hmm. I mean, he shot himself in the face oh. and he somehow survived this, but he's in a wheelchair. Mm. And he's, he's actually doing pretty good, but it's been obviously a major, major, major struggle. So... I gave him your, your DVDs. Yeah. Yeah. Shot happens. Okay. I gave him the DVDs. Oh, if and, you can't stand up, stand right. up. Right. And it was just powerful for him. Oh, good. And um, she's like, do you have any more stuff? I'm like, well, I, I have the book, but it's signed to me. You know? <laughs> we'll get him one. Yeah, anyway. Do you get called upon often or, or at times by people who are recently mm-hmm. confined to a wheelchair to through an accident or whatever to kind of mentor somebody or give somebody hope. I mean, does that come up for you a lot? All the time. And I love it. My line of work at Intermountain Healthcare was in rehab to go visit these people. And, you know, we'd go to the mall and I'd show them how to go up an escalator in a wheelchair. And everybody's different. Quadriplegic's different than a paraplegic. Everybody's different. But yes, I, I love mentoring people. I love showing them that you can do this and you can do that. You don't learn those things in two months in rehab. It's just... It's hard, but I, uh, yeah, I just uh, enjoy that. And, you know, like your friend's son, obviously this is a tragedy. Obviously this is a sad thing. Uh, but I do know this. There's hope. If you can get yourself positioned properly and they can embrace this situation and work through it as a team, there's a chance that 30 years later, like me, they can look backwards and see all the wisdom in everything that happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just admire people out there that can make it through the, the challenges. Hmm. And if I can help them, you know, great. You know, I can show somebody how to go up an escalator in a wheelchair, but I can't always help someone figure out, you know, how to get through depression or how to get through the relationship struggles. There's so many things out there. I just salute people for getting up every day and doing the best you can. Well, I think a lot of your message that really inspires me and others is that you can still do all of those things. It's just going to be different. You can different. still... Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, different. It's, and, and that's what I had to come to grips with is different... It, I think I said this earlier. Different is not bad. It's just different. Sometimes when you're different, when it almost makes life more exciting. I, I don't mean it like <laughs> I recommend you go out and shoot yourself or you get in a car wreck. I don't mean that, but... Sometimes when you're not living life just like everybody else, it kind of adds 
a little pizzazz. It kind of is exciting to go to the store anymore for me and see what someone might do or someone's kid might, oh, I'm always worried that parents are going to be, you know, their kid is going to, you can see parents on an elevator. They're just, the blood's going out of their face that their little four-year-old's going to say something. Oh, I know, I I can see it in their face. They're like, oh, no, and then, you know. Anyway, it's just awkward. Why are you in that wheelchair? Yes. And the parents are petrified that and they're going to really ask. Care. And I you want them to, the right? I smile and say, hey, my friend shot me. Don't play with guns. I love it. You know, so. Huh. So what are your pity parties about? Is it ever about the wheelchair anymore? No, not really. It's sometimes about things that the wheelchair cause. You know, like I do, to this day, I wish I could go out and help shovel snow. When it snows. You know what? You really don't miss much. And um, I'm here to tell you, you can let that one go. Let that party go. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, I think as you get older. If I ever have to shovel snow, I'm going to throw a pity party. <laughs> or, or anybody that's listening to this, <laughs> next time you shovel snow, even though you hate it with a passion... Be grateful you can do it and think of that guy in Draper, Utah named Mike Schlappy that wishes he could shovel snow. Now, it's smart you live in Palm Springs. It's what? Two degrees outside here in Utah? Yeah. But no, I, honestly, I don't have lots of pity parties about the wheelchair. I mean, life is life and you wonder all the time. But And I have a lot of pain, physical pain. Mm-hmm. But no, I'm not a pity party kind of guy. Oh. When I get that way, I just go fishing or something and try to get past it. Right. What's the physical pain aspect of it? What is nerves? Yeah. Your spinal cord gets shot, and your body's a big electrical system, and you have phantom pains. People say you can't feel your legs. I'm like, oh yeah, but I can feel these shooting pains down my hips and in my belly. And people wonder why I'm all curled over and looking funny. And you know, our backs are both hurting us sitting here as we do this right. interview. <laughs> We're both stretching. I know, I know, I know. Oh, I know. Rubbing our backs. Let's get out there. Can you give me a massage after? <laughs> But it's it's just been uh, it's just something I just, I just deal with it. I don't I don't even when I'm pain free I'm like oh yes right. that's awesome. So be thankful if you're pain free out there. You said that your personal experiences with nurses and doctors and therapists not only saved your life but also pointed you to a career in healthcare and rehabilitation. Yes, I I probably would have been a sales rep or an attorney. I don't know. But I know this, I was smart, and I knew as a kid when I was sitting there in a wheelchair that I might as well get in an environment where I'm comfortable, where my personality, my situation can be an advantage. Right. I looked and thought, why not healthcare? Why not rehab? So I got a master's degree in business, but I emphasized in healthcare, and I started working in California and up here for Inmount Healthcare and in rehab. But that's really because of the care I received from good doctors and nurses and I saw how that helped me, and, and the whole concept of healthcare and the compassion and helping people, and it's just the career I picked for ten years, fifteen years. Are you are you still a consultant and a, a mentor to um, to people with disabilities? Uh-huh. Uh yes, not as much as I used to be, but I'll still get calls to come visit somebody or maybe help somebody, or I'll go invite them out to play some wheelchair basketball or tennis or you know whatever, go hunting or fishing. So yes, I hope I'm always a mentor, but not in the full-time capacity that I used to be when I was a rehab person. I'm fascinated by the relationship that you have with your audience because I'm, I'm fascinated by that myself. I mean, I feel like it's the best job in the world to, again, walk into a room full of total strangers and have an exchange mm-hmm. within a two-hour period of time mm-hmm. that sometimes is more intense and more honest than they've had with somebody that they've known for 20 years. Yeah. 
and we get to have that with total strangers in two hours. Yeah. With your audiences, like what are, you know, you're standing up there talking and, you know, what are some of the topics or some of the messages that when you start talking, all of a sudden you see your audience go, oh my gosh, she's talking to me right now. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, sometimes I might say something like, let things make you better, not bitter. Mm-hmm. Or if you resist change, you fail. If you accept change, you survive. If you create change, you succeed. I'll see people pull out their papers and start writing down notes. Or I, I challenge people to find their bullet. I might tell them that I lost my gold medal because of a friend. I, you know, whatever. i never sure which part of my story. I show some cool pictures. Mm-hmm. Pull out my Olympic medals. I never, I'm quite sure which thing the audience is connecting with. Because, I, you know, sometimes the lights are hitting you in the eye. But I do know that I can sometimes just see people. You can almost just see their mind turning. And you know you're helping people. And... You know, again, they're not just listening to you. They're feeling you. And they're trying to let you help them. I can share my story in an hour, when to total strangers. Where I was pretty transparent. I was trying to be real. And they know everything about me. Well, not everything, because I can, of course, fake it. I come home and I'm just, my kids don't listen to me and I have whatever. But I know that I'm a total stranger to them. They know everything about me, and yet I just spoke to 500 people, and I don't even know their names. But that's a lot of time that's, though, you and I being willing to do that. Some people hate it. They don't want to share. They don't, but you learn after a while that that's okay. I've always challenged business leaders to become motivational speakers, meaning figure out your presentation, what's your story, mm-hmm. what are, if you need to spell it out, you're going to tell this personal story, and then there's five lessons you learn from those, and those five mm-hmm. stories have point A and point B under each one of them, and here's your call to action, and yep. here's your home play assignment, and, you know, meaning create a presentation, because yep. when you have the ability to move people, or if you don't have the ability to move people, you could be the most brilliant person on the planet, but nobody's going to follow you. Yeah. And I like what you keep on saying. You've said it three times so far, I think, that you want people to feel you rather than just hear you. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much that applies to parents. You know, So you're talking, talking, talking. Are your kids listening to you? Or, you, know, you might be saying one thing. Your kids are feeling something different. And I think by people feeling something from you... They may not remember what you said, but they'll remember the feeling and, yeah. and you created a memory for them. Yeah. And I mean, and let's even go more basic. It's all about love. We're just sharing. We're humans. We're, we're mankind. We're trying to help each other get through this existence in this world. And that's the only reason besides obviously I get paid for it and I like it. But I, the only, I mean, I think we're doing people a disservice if we have an ability to impact people and we don't. You just said it. If there's a person that has an opportunity to get in front of a thousand people and help those people and he doesn't even know what he stands for, doesn't even know what his opinions are, can't even get on a stage and doesn't have to be all eloquent or whatever, just get up and share your story. Just be real. Tell them where you came from. And you know, I have people all the time say, I want to share my story. I say, do. Right. Set up the soup cans. Right. Start writing things down. And you know, you, you're a businessman. You have all kinds of cool things. You have so many chances to get up in front of people or in front of your future professionals. And we might just think, oh, we're boring or we're old or that happened 30 years ago. But these people are looking to people. They're looking to people like you and hopefully me for that inspiration, Mm -hmm. for that kick in the butt Mm -hmm. that I can do this. A lot of people, they want a kick in the butt. They kind of want somebody to say, get out there and take responsibility for your life. That to me is probably the key theme of my speech. Someone says, what's your key theme? Take personal responsibility. 
take personal responsibility. It's the ability to respond. You're probably right that they do want to hear it from you or from somebody else. You know, because at home they're hearing it. Take personal response, but at home it's nagging. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. But a total stranger comes in and says it to them. Mm-hmm. And they, you're right, they want, it. they want to hear that. It might be our calling. You don't know. So who were your mentors then? Like today, who inspires you? I mean, you, you talked about the role that your, your parents played, that your doctors and nurses and therapists played, um, that your, your siblings played. You know, mm-hmm. so today, who do you look to? Who inspires you? And my parents have always been my mentors. Mm-hmm. Don't even not that I ask them for their opinion on everything, but they're just twenty years ahead of me. They have my genetics. <laughs> I watch how they handle things. Oh. I admire them in different ways. They both taught me from when I was little. They love me unconditionally. They love me before I was in a wheelchair. They love me after I was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So my parents have always been that stable thing for me. Mm-hmm. But you set that aside. My wife, my kids, my siblings are my best friends. My friends in wheelchairs are where I'm most comfortable. Mm-hmm. In addition to my family, my friends in wheelchairs where I'm the most comfortable because they accept me right. and they understand me. You know, I, I can't sit here and say I've got great mentors out there that I call or like read every book they've ever written. I admire people. I admire the John Woodens of the world. I admire folks like yourself that build empires. I admire great athletes. I admire great religion people. I admire people that they're real. They have character. I admire people that they want to help people, but I think you said do something that you love that helps people. You you said three things about a business. You have to do what you love, love who you do it with, and love who you do it for. Yeah, I admire people who can... Figure out a way to make a living helping people doing what they love. Because right. those people weren't afraid to reach their dreams and to chase their dreams. So what's your hope? Where do you see yourself in the next year, in the next 20 years? I need your help, When <laughs> I've often thought of that. I've thought all of a sudden when people don't want to look at me on stage or hear my story anymore, what next? I love going to the barn. I have a fishing pond. I have animals. I love getting away. I think I need to go to Venus. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. <laughs> I need, need to, to figure see. out women. I'm going to go study <laughs> relationships. I, I don't really know, but I have this gut feeling there might be one more thing out there for me. I, just, I don't know what it is yet. Like a hobby or another book or another message or another completely it, different career? Or? You know, it could be just another message. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. But I almost think it's another career. Starting a business or doing something like to help disabled people. I mean, I've started a wheelchair sports foundation. I've done some of that. But I've always got my eye open for that next opportunity. Mm. And I think any person is smart in life to be willing to shift. You're cruising along and you've got all your business, your schools or whatever. But be willing to see opportunities as you're marching along. Do you have a final message for our listeners? You know... No, I would just say this, thank you. Because there's people out there, whether they were forced to or not, they took the time to listen to you and I chat over this table. And I I would encourage every one of them to don't just let this pass by, but go back to your office, take a little sticky paper, and write at least one thing that we've talked about that they are going to commit and take personal responsibility to do a little bit better. Whether that's give a hug, whether that's have bad days but not bad weeks. I don't know what it is, 
but I feel like our time is better served if we helped somebody. Anyway. Wow. I don't know what it is about you. I Sitting in your audience, I was emotional. <laughs> Introducing you, I was emotional. Sitting here with you today, I'm emotional too. Thanks. So, thank thanks you, Mike. Really, I'm really, thank you. Brilliant. Brilliant.